So we've been practicing together for a day or so now. And I'd like to offer some reflections on the kind of the underlying orientation that informs what we're doing. And perhaps consider what it means to to orient towards freedom. When we encounter the the word and in fact the engagement or the practice of meditation, we often consider it as a, a sort of a a thing that we're gonna do in order to get somewhere, in order to get something. And that's really understandable. And there's something true about it, in fact, as a perception, as an orientation. But I think more fundamentally we can understand what we're engaged in here as we engage in the practice of meditation as, as something that is framed by the understanding of, of letting go. To practice letting go, renunciation we could say. And of course, when we come to a retreat such as this, or when we engage in meditation practice at home, in our lives, or in a setting such as here at Guy House, it's natural and right that we want to learn techniques and we want to understand which ways of engaging and applying our attention will produce which effect and what effect. And sometimes within that, of course, we can have, because we've read about or heard about or even in our previous experience encountered realms of, of human experience that are of value, that seem useful, that we're drawn towards, interested in, and again, rightly so. This is understandable. This is okay. And it's very much a part of what we are doing. But it's also the part of what we're doing that kind of is most obvious, that most easily maps onto the, the cultural and social and habitual tendencies that we have that we actually need to address in order for the transformative potential of meditation practice to become available to us. So there is this aspect of, of learning skills and technique and how doing it this way produces that outcome. And that's really important. But something much greater is possible for us. And this is something that really lies at the heart of the Buddha's teachings. To understand what it is to awaken in the very midst of our lives. There's a, there's a saying that goes something along the lines of, if you keep going in the direction you're heading, that's where you're going to end up. And it's, I think, a really interesting thing to contemplate. Because, of course, it's pretty obvious. If you keep going in the direction you're heading, that's where you're going to end up. So there's a way in which we are invited by that, I think, to question, to consider, you know, what is the direction of my life? Or to what is my life directed? We could equally say, where are we heading? And this is a critical personal question and a critical collective question for us as human beings. If we look into the world we may see multiple crises of 
climate, ecological and social justice that are born of greed and disconnection and deeply distressing to be aware of and to be subject to. We see that collectively we need to change direction. Where we are heading is not where we want to go. And if we look into our own hearts, we may also recognize the, the pain of what is difficult for us to experience, to handle, and the distress and frustration that can arise with a sense of feeling limited or feeling bound. And in the quieter places of our heart, we might sense that perhaps something more is possible for us. When I was a, a young man and traveling in Asia, and I, I visited uh, Calcutta quite early in my travels, it was the, the place where my grandmother lived, who I never met her until I, I went there in my mid-twenties. And, uh, and while I was there, I, I found a book by, a, an, uh, by the even then elderly Buddhist monk, uh, a German monk who'd uh, practiced many years and written this book called The Heart of Buddhist Meditation. His name was Nyanaponikatara. And in one of the first paragraphs in the book, quite early on, I can't remember exactly, it might have even been right at the start, it said something that struck me very, very powerfully. It said, this heart-mind. Now actually, it actually said this mind but I know the word that he's referring to and I think heart-mind says it better, so I'm going to take the liberty. This heart-mind is bound all over. And yet can know freedom here and now. This heart-mind is bound all over and yet can know freedom here and now. And these words from a contemporary practitioner of this tradition spoke to me in my wonderings of what to do with my life. And coming to see, coming to read and to study about the life of the Buddha two and a half thousand years ago, it seems that he too was engaged with deep questions in his life, as I imagine, perhaps for many, if not all of us here, we will at times have found ourselves. And in his own journey, he came to some profound discovery and understanding that he expressed in a range of different ways. But very much at the core and the heart of it was his recognition that there was this experience of what he called dukkha, which we often translate as as suffering or the fact that experience is not fulfilling, satisfying or as we want it to be. We talk about dukkha and uh, one of my teachers describes this as that which is hard to bear. And it's like, yeah, I think we recognize that this is part of our life. It's not all of our life. It's not the only thing in life. But yes, there is that. And I think it's actually a relief when someone says, yes, there is that because we see that this is something for all of our lives, not just the life of someone who perhaps got it wrong or didn't know how to do it properly, because it's part of everyone's truth. 
It's universal. And the Buddha went on to say that it's because of an unawareness, avidya is the word, like a not being able to understand and comprehend the true nature of what it is to be alive and how life is. Because of that unawareness, we are bound. And he also spoke of the possibility of realizing freedom to release ourselves from bondage, from suffering, through understanding, through seeing the nature of things, the way experience, the way life arises, the patterns and principles and the dynamic lawfulness of what takes place. And in doing so, we're then able to align our attentions, sorry, align our intentions and our choices with that understanding, with that recognition of what is true. And so coming from this kind of understanding or recognizing of, of what's going on, the Buddha's teaching points to giving or and calls us to give attention to what happens when we take hold of experience, what we call attachment. And this is understood as being the basis of suffering, of limitation and bondage. And that in seeing that taking hold of things is the basis of suffering, is the core component within what constructs that profoundly limiting and distressing experience. We see that letting go is the basis of freedom. The ability to release the habitual tendency to grip onto experience and the many different ways that we do, this is the basis of freedom. In the Pali, the word is nikamma. And sometimes that's a nicer word to use because renunciation is not popular in the Western world. It's not a thing that people go, oh yeah, great, let's do some of that, is it? I mean, of course, we might sometimes know the beauty of it and something so lovely in that sense of everyone bringing their phones or many, many of us bringing, bringing our phones and, uh, or bringing your phones because I've still got mine um, <laughs> and offering them up, knowing that that's not easy. Having done that myself, I know it's not easy to do and there's that sort of, just, ah, it's gone, okay. All those worlds, all those people, all that entertainment and everything else, and it's gone. And yet something so touching, so uplifting about that. And I can report that um, when we got the box and or the basket, and it was actually quite heavy. As any of you who came towards the end, it was very full, and the, the, uh, the staff in the, uh, in the reception reported to us that that's probably as full as they've ever seen it which we kind of get some kudos for, so just, just so you want to know that. Um, of course, that's kind of interesting to do that with the renunciate thing, isn't it? How good we were at renouncing. <laughs> but it's more to say, oh, there's something to be celebrated there, uplifted there, rather than we're better than someone else, because mm, we're not, actually. But there's something to also honour that, oh, yes, this isn't the association that we have, and yet our experience can change in the Western culture that most of us will be familiar with, but not just in Western European culture, but other worlds too, equally and often. The association of renunciation is with deprivation, with having something taken away from us or withheld. 
or f- with a kind of a puritanical rejection of enjoyment, of pleasure, of ease, like, you know, if you're too comfortable, you know, reject, renounce, give up your cushion, sit uncomfortably. It's helpful if you're drowsy, I'll just let you know, if you're ever having trouble with falling asleep. I don't recommend this, but one way you can deal with it is take away your chair, take away your cushions, take away your mat. It's really hard to fall asleep when you're uncomfortable. If you're still drowsy, of course, um, go and sit somewhere where it's cold and wet. And again, it gets really hard to fall asleep. But that kind of way of doing it isn't actually what we're suggesting. That's a different kind of kind of renunciation, we could say. So it's not about rejecting that there's a place for what might bring ease or enjoyment or comfort to our hearts and even our bodies, but understanding what brings the greater ease, the greater peace, the greater comfort and well-being, in fact. Because letting go, renunciation, we could say, is the basis of deep inner well-being, of peace, of rest, of ease. When we give up on the sort of the accumulating of superficial, fleeting sort of entertainment or pleasant experience. Not because we reject what is pleasurable, but because we're interested in something more deeply pleasurable, more deeply uplifting. And I was I was staying with a friend recently in London and she'd been here on retreat a few months earlier with one of my teachers who I who I love very much and wasn't able to attend the retreat. His, his name's Ajahn Sachito. He's an English Buddhist monk who was for many years the abbot of the monastery in Chithurst, Chittavaveka. And anyway, he was here teaching a retreat and he has a monastic frame which is very oriented towards renunciation. And my friend was telling me how on the retreat one of the things they renounce is being in control of food. So they can't take food, they can only be given it. And it has to be before midday. Otherwise they can't eat it. And that there was one day where there was this lovely meal and there was, I think, you know, maybe rice and curry and salad. I don't know exactly what the, whether it was rice and curry, but something like that. But there was definitely salad and then there was custard. And apparently Ajahn offered his bowl, rice, curry, salad and custard. And the people got quite flustered and upset. Who was doing Because, no, you must have a separate bowl. No, sorry. Just stick it in there. And that's how he got it, custard on a salad. And there was a conversation that she reported that took place later, you know, where some dialogue. Why did you do that? Why ruin the perfectly good custard? Or the perfectly good salad? Now, I've never had custard on salad, so maybe it's nice. But I could see I might have a similar response. And yet, what Ajahn Sachito said, he said, if you knew what my experience was here, you'd understand why I do this. I don't think he tried to elaborate. He wasn't trying to sell it to anybody or convince them to follow him. He just said, my experience tells me something different. And what I imagine, though of course I don't know, um, is that he gets, or there's something available, and this is what I do know from my own experience, something becomes available when we release that urge to organize it in the way that will amplify or maximize the amount of pleasurable sort of hits I get from what's going on. The nutritional value is not less, clearly. 
when we let go the compulsion of our conditioning and that urge and that pressure within to always try and get it as best as I can rather than just saying okay I'll take it as it comes and if it comes with custard on salad I'll take that because this is the framework he lives by he doesn't negotiate oh well shall I abandon that framework for this time and do it this way and that way what, what about if the salad dressing's not quite my favorite sort should I then start to negotiate that it gets complicated something so simple as a transformative practice <coughs> and so when we consider what we're engaged in we can notice how quickly we start trying to see how well I'm doing at it how well am I performing we start trying to measure our meditative practice and pretty much everyone does it even if they've you know if they know or quite should know better and I remember for years I used to keep track of how many days I'd practiced and in meditation I'd be sitting there adding up all the retreats and all the weeks and months and all the sitting just to come out with a number that I thought oh and then I'd do it again two or three days later and it would be two or three numbers bigger the sense of wanting to measure is so so compelling for us and often I mean that one's a bit of an extreme version though you might recognize it often we're trying to measure how concentrated our mind is how long since the last time my mind wandered off or how many times or how few times my mind has wandered off or how it feels does it feel good does it feel as good as the best it ever felt or does it feel as bad as the worst it ever felt or these kind of measuring comparative activities that we just get drawn into of course sometimes our mind is a lot further away in the stories of past and future but as it comes closer to where we are what we start to notice is that tendency often just applies to what's happening here and so I think it's useful to consider not that we have to measure or evaluate our practice but if we're interested in where we're heading we want to see what direction do I want to give my practice my life to consider these things and it's not about how much concentration we have or how we are able to gather and collect and focus the mind although that's a profoundly beneficial capacity and we will and we are engaged in cultivating it and it's not about producing any particular experience although the ranges of experiences we can access and practice some of them can open us to degrees of understanding and letting go that are remarkable so not again dismissing experiences but how do we really look at what's going on I was once having a conversation with Joseph Goldstein about this and we were just kind of reflecting and his his take on how do we assess jo Joseph's one of the senior teachers and um, kind of and elders of this this lineage and he, he, he said really I think it comes down to how much reactivity we have in life you know how much are we in the grip of reactivity of craving of aversion of greed of hatred of delusion and in our lives that's if you're going to measure your practice that's where the qualitative shift will be felt and known and that's what you can look at and that seems like a pretty fair way to frame it my own sense was when we were talking it's like actually I think it's very much to do with what are we able to let go of how deeply can I 
release myself, which in a sense is saying the same thing. Release that sense of reactive entanglement. How fully and deeply are we able to let go? This is something, I'm not saying it's the thing to measure, or that we even need to measure it, but to be interested in, to see how far can I travel in that direction. Because I think with anything like this, it's not about some kind of idea or ideal or goal, but it's a sense of directionality. This is my direction of travel, because I see that it's fruitful. It makes a difference. And whether I travel a little way down that, or a long way, it doesn't matter. What's important is I understand that as I travel in this direction, it's beneficial, it's wholesome, it's fruitful. And so in this context, we can understand practice with the word the Buddha used that's been translated mostly as meditation. It's, the word is bhavana. And bhavana translates much more precisely, and I have to confess here, I'm not a Pali scholar, I have this from friends who are and the teachers I, I respect who who are um, scholars of the Pali language which is the language the Buddha's teachings were recorded in. but Bhavana translates more directly as cultivation and the sort of the Victorian um, English translators who, who gave the first versions of it in the sort of the late 19th century used meditation because it's a word from the, the Christian um, religious and mystical traditions but actually cultivation what do we want to cultivate here what do we want to bring into being and in a sense what do we want to feed renunciation letting go as a practice is very much about that sense of seeing what is it that I want to feed do I want to feed craving and selfishness or do I want to feed generosity and sharing do I want to feed ill will and anger? Or do I want to feed kindness and well-wishing? Do I want to feed dissatisfaction and irritation? Or do I want to feed contentment and gratitude? And it's interesting just to frame things like that. Not, am I being sort of deprived? But, oh, if I choose to put something down, does that actually feed what I what I'm more interested in. And uh, interestingly, as I was contemplating this topic, um, at supper time I was thinking, oh, I'd really like some of that soup. I tried a little bit of Leela's and it was really nice. And I know that if I eat supper at that time, my brain turns to mush and I will have a much less enjoyable experience of preparing and delivering a teaching. And I imagine you will have a less useful experience of, of, of the sort of the results of my supper. Um, and yet I could keep feeling this, oh, I'd really like a piece of toast, oh, oh that, mm, mm, I'd really like some soup. Mm, mm. And just having to kind of sense, yeah, there's that, yeah, I'd like this, it would be nice, but how many bowls of soup, how many pieces of toast have I had in my life? Many. And yet still I would like some. And yet, actually, I know that the, the well-being, the nourishment, actually the joy that comes from sharing the Dharma and feeling like, it can come through me easily rather than having to negotiate with a sort of slightly addled brain after eating is much more sweet. And I still had a piece of toast, but only one and no soup or very little. Um, but it's just interesting to see, yeah. And that's what I was thinking about this topic. 
So we can reflect on this to see how in ourselves and in our world, if we look around, we see there's this strong conditioned view that happiness, that satisfaction, that fulfillment will come through what we can call materialism. And this kind of shows in really three ways or three levels. One is to do with things like getting stuff, having stuff, more stuff. Now, I think you're probably here because you've got some idea at least, if not a very good idea, that that's not going to do it for you because there's not a lot of stuff on offer. Maybe you've been to the shop and checked out the toothpaste and the soap and it's, it's good wholesome stuff, but there are better places to go for that, aren't there? So we probably get that one. The second level is to do with the sense of materialism that arises around having experiences having lovely experiences, having profound spiritual experiences. That seems that if I get the right and enough of the right experiences, that's going to do it for me. And yet experiences don't last. They struggle to do it for us because they don't last. And they're not always available when we want them, of the kind we wish at least. And the third level of... Uh, Materialism is in relationship to the sense of imagining and believing that fulfillment will come through becoming a particular version of a someone, almost inevitably somewhat different than the version that we are. And the belief that this will bring fulfillment leads us in the realm of experience and in the realm of becoming someone to regard experiences as the solution if we have the right one to getting the right experiences and then on the basis of those experiences defining ourselves as someone who is or is not according to the way we wish to be they become either the solution or if they're the wrong experiences and not the ones we wanted or they end up showing me as someone who tends to not be the kind of person I want, would like to be or think I should be they become the obstacle and we become engaged in experiences as if they are what is definitive of the fundamental bottom line qualitative element of our life. And we imagine and conceive experiences, things that exist in a fixed and a separate way, that are kind of like particular things, like a piece of toast. And we think, oh, give me that. At least I think, mm, piece of toast, mm, yeah, that nice spread and some extra salt. Always like extra salt, you know. And it's like, mm. and it becomes like, oh, some part of me feels like, oh, that's going to do it for me. Oh, yes. But that way we relate fails to see that the experience is changing. It doesn't stay in a certain way. And if we eat a piece of toast, you know, how much of it do we really enjoy? Like the first mouthful, yes, mm, it's good. Second mouthful, yeah, it's still good. Third mouthful, boom, mine's gone somewhere else. Me thinking about a Dharma talk. You, I don't know what you were thinking about. But really interesting. Like It doesn't do it. It doesn't stay that engaging once we've tasted it. Mm. And it doesn't exist independent of everything else going around. Actually, a piece of toast with some spread and salt, it's not that exciting, but it's a bit of an escape from having to think about what I'm going to talk about. 
So it becomes even more exciting. And if someone came past with a, you know, a whole plate of chocolate cake, the toast wouldn't interest me at all. It's so relative, isn't it? So the conditions affect how we relate to the experience. And when we don't understand that, the experience drags, it commands, it pulls our attention. And we find ourselves entangled with it. So the training of our attention, it's a training of letting go of becoming entangled with, stepping not away from the experience, but away from the tendency to take hold of it. So not pushing experience away. We're not trying to remove ourselves from it. We're noticing and releasing the tendency to take hold of it. And we may notice as we walk around, you know, how we become interested in consuming experiences. Not just at the mealtime, but, you know, it's only on retreat that I read the label on tea bags. I don't know if you've noticed. Or if you've found yourself just sort of drifting into the notice board room and checking out the schedule. And it's the schedule for today. There's nothing else really there. And it's like just reading it again to see if it's changed or if there's something new you hadn't noticed the last time. Can it do more for me this time? Sitting, walking, standing, meal, da, 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 da. But somehow it offers us something. It's like it's somewhere to engage that experience. And it's like we're looking for something. Not to be hard on ourselves, but to notice it. Actually kind of compassionate. Oh look, this is a, a being looking for something. But not actually getting it from what it's looking for. Looking at. There's a story told of Mullah Nasruddin, who's a Sufi teaching figure and both a wise man and a fool and he's uh, seen on one occasion to be sitting in the village square with a large pile of chilies in front of him on market day and he's picking them up and eating them one at a time and his eyes are red his face is sweating his nose is running and he seems quite distressed and his friends come to him and say Mullah Mullah what are you doing and Nazareth says picks up a chili and eats and he says his whole body shakes he says I'm eating these chilies and they say mula mula we can see you're eating these chilies why are you eating these chilies and Nazarin smiles he says I keep hoping to find a sweet one and it would seem that we're very hopeful human beings Consuming experience. How much have we consumed already? If it hasn't given us what we're looking for, how likely is it that more or a different version of that will do this? Jack Cornfield, uh, again another one of the elders of our tradition, he, he once observed that people come along to a retreat 
as if they're going to the store or the shop. He said, that's not what this is. This place is the dump. This is the place where you go to get rid of the rubbish, the trash, the stuff we no longer need. And so we see letting go is the vehicle for this. And we can reflect on the teachment of attachment that the Buddha offered. That attachment leads to suffering, leads to bondage, to limitation, to dukkha, that which is hard to bear. It's important to distinguish, and we use this word attachment as a translation for the Buddha's word, to distinguish the the psychological meaning of attachment, which is <coughs> a connection, a bonding relationship, particularly for an infant human being with their the person who's providing their mothering, their parenting, care, and how psychologically important this is. It's not to suggest that that somehow is a bad idea at all. Attachment in the way the Buddha speaks about it is the unskillful and harmful way in which we put pressure on our experience on the world and on ourselves to conform to our desires to our preferences to our fantasies and that leads to a way in which we become entangled with it and i sometimes find a way to illustrate this that seems useful it's it's not that non-attachment means being disconnected from. Detachment was a word often used in teachings when I first encountered them, and it's actually not that helpful for most of us. It suggests pulling away, detaching. Like, you know, if you were to detach your arm or detach your retina, it's not a thing you'd recommend, is it? Non-attachment is different. So attachment is like when we come up to something and we become entangled with it, like our hands might be locked together and we can't move or go anywhere with them. Whereas practice asks us to come up close and be intimate with our experience, like these two palms, right here together, no distance, and yet free to move if needed, or to orient in a different way when that's appropriate. So non-attachment is not suggesting distance. But a different way of meeting our experience. The Buddha, the word the Buddha used for this attachment was upadana. Upadana. Dana, you maybe know, is the root of the word, is the word for generosity, for sharing, for giving, for a kind of open-handedness. Ah is a negative, a, a negator. So it's non-generosity. Non Adana is non-generous, non-givingness. Up is an intensifier. So it's intensified non-generosity. That's what the Buddha was talking about. Intensified non-generousness or non-open-handedness, which is a closed hand, a tight hand, a holding on to. And when we see that experience is changing, is fluid, 
is not fixed and is conditioned by everything around it. We see that it can't offer us fulfillment in itself. We quite naturally start to let go, to open. It's like understanding that experience is empty of existence in any inherent absolute way is not to negate or deny what manifests, what appears, but to understand it in a way that allows us to release it. And it's not to say that we disregard it in any way. And there's a great story of the Zen monk who comes to see their master and says, Master, Master, I've, I've understood the Dharma. I understand now. All is empty. And the Zen master takes her stick and thwacks him with it really hard. Is that empty? Interesting. What do we understand? Because here we are asked to look and see what happens when we live according to what we understand and often our understanding we can only see what we really believe when we look at how we are actually behaving we might think I know one thing but our behavior shows as um, I think it was the French philosopher Gaillou who said if we know but we do not act accordingly then we know imperfectly so we can have an intellectual understanding of something, but if we don't act and live according to it, then we don't really fully yet know it. Which is not a criticism, but a, an invitation to deepen the understanding, to understand that experience does not bring satisfaction to us. All the experience we've had have not finished the job. More experiences will not do that. But what's really important to understand of this, although experience doesn't in and of itself give us fulfillment or satisfaction, equally in and of itself it cannot obstruct that possibility. It's not the ultimate solution, but nor is it ultimately the problem. It's just experience. It's what it is. And true fulfillment, satisfaction, true happiness, the meeting what our hearts long for in their depths, in their quiet depths. This is something found only in the immediacy of our life. Immediacy, that which is unmediated, where there's nothing in between. Where we're no longer holding ourselves separate from. Because not just experience is without a fixed and unchanging and independent basis, so to ourselves. We too are not unchanging or with somehow a fixed basis. When we see experience as constructed and dependent, it has less power to make us believe that it is ultimately going to be the solution or is ultimately the obstacle. And then the practice of letting go becomes obvious and compelling. 
So we practice by just letting go of our reactions to the experiences that arise. Not suggesting we shouldn't have reactions, because we do. But that we can notice them and not have to enact them. Letting go of the urge to hold on. And where we might wish to get rid of experience, just letting them be. Just letting them be. Sometimes we think, I'm supposed to let go, so if I let go of this, it'll go away. That's not letting go. Letting go is, in relationship to that which is not easy for us, is to let it be. And that which we are desiring or craving, it's letting go of the urge to try and keep it, or fix it, or reproduce it. It's not about pushing it away. But just allowing its natural expression of it's here for now, but not forever, to play out. To let go of the idea that we're somehow trying to get somewhere else or something else or become someone other than what and where and who we are already. The Buddha in one uh, tantric text apparently observed, he said something like, I gained absolutely nothing from complete, perfect, unexcelled awakening. That is why it is complete perfect, unexcelled awakening. And this makes sense because anything we gain, we can lose. But what we may discover that has always been true. That is what we're invited to be interested in. So there's no need to evaluate your practice as good or bad on the basis of the experiences that happen. Give yourself some space to let the process unfold. Understand what we're engaged in, but we don't need to be measuring it. We don't need to be evaluating it. At least not too much. in being interested and being curious and directing your attention to this breathing body, sustaining your attention in this breathing body as a basis for meeting in an embodied and curious way. What this life is offering us, when we hold on to something, it's like our hands are closed. When we're grasping for something, trying to get something, the very capacity of receiving is lost. Because the, the organ of receptivity, when it's grabbed hold of something, it cannot. As if with closed fists we would go to the river and try and take some water. We come up thirsty. But when the hands are open and can receive, the, the water just pours in. And so we learn to trust that quieter aspect of our hearts that maybe can't explain to us where we're going, 
or how we're going to get there. But that senses that something is truly possible beyond what we have known. Beyond what we've been told by those who have not for themselves discovered what the wise women and the wise men and the wise beings of all genders have known, have lived and have shared through the generations of human existence. And this is what we're here to discover, to receive. Or so it seems to me. I'd like to finish with a short quote from my teacher Ajahn Suchito, who I mentioned earlier, and he he gave this talk in 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 Budgaya in India and over thirty years ago when I first met him. Um, And he said this, he said, there is no real learning on the intellectual level. There is only a kind of learning that we do when we have the humility to recognize that really the learning part is when we go to the edge of where we know and where we control. And the nobility of our life, the nobility of our purpose, the aspiration of our life says, keep going past the area where you can't control it anymore and trust. For me, this is the heart of devotion, of faith, of surrender. Not a surrender of responsibility, but a profound recognition of what the responsibility of this being is. To live in accordance with truth. To honor the truth and to trust the truth of our life as it is. What lies beyond me and control and the sense of self is the joy of the deathless, the joy of the boundless, the mysterious vastness of life. Let's take a few moments sitting quietly together.
May we all in our practice here together and in our lives, may we deepen in our capacity to release and let go what binds the heart. And may we come to know and understand the heart released from binding. For our own well-being, for the welfare of all beings and the well-being of all that lives and all that is. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.